We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. Suns podcast. My name is Mike. I'm here with Sam. Sam, how are you doing? I'm good, man. It's a different experience watching the Phoenix Suns in games this week uh, against teams like Utah uh, and the Clippers, right? Versus the game, the 30-point blowout we saw yesterday against Washington. Yeah, there was something satisfying about the win against Washington in that the Suns had been playing down to their opponents commonly. Washington actually hasn't been terrible, terrible, like a lot of the teams that they've struggled with, like the Timberwolves, uh, but still a team that the Suns should easily beat. So it was nice to see them. I think they ended up outscoring the uh, the Wizards by 26 points in the second half when it was a two-point game at halftime. So that game really flipped in the second half. So it's nice to see them sort of turn it on and look like a look like a team that should be beating those teams in um, in those types of ways. But you're right. I mean, we, we talked about what to talk about on this podcast, you and I, and it's like we ha- we really have to focus on the games that were the back-to-back games on national TV, the overtime win against the, J- the Jazz, and then the back-to-back game against the Clippers that resulted in a loss, uh, which a lot of people watched. It wasn't just us. It seemed like that was sort of the talk of the uh, NBA, the Jazz game especially. The Clippers game less so, probably because the Suns were so exhausted, uh, there were a couple other really good games on that night, too, I yeah. remember. The Jazz game, we kind of lucked into like a time slot where it was like the entire league was really was really watching. My Twitter engagement that night was, was crazy compared yeah. to a normal night. Well, I want to ask you just from this perspective, did you have fun watching these games? Of course, of course. I, I feel like actually I saw you, and I don't think we've 
spoken about it privately, say that uh like during the jazz game when it was going to overtime oh i wish i could enjoy this like this is a crazy game for but like i thought it was a great game i was stressed out i'll concede that to you i was definitely stressed out um and i think it's going to be even more stressful in the playoffs because like especially then you're on the biggest stage you know everyone's watching like the suns are kind of they're representing themselves but they're also kind of representing us as fans in like Mm -hmm. a weird way like you want to go to you want to go to bat for them you want to defend them and so if they're having a bad night you don't want to see them take shots from all sides uh in the online discourse but like that game against utah was just a phenomenal game for any neutral fan who like wanted to tune in like that to me was a tremendous product for the nba to put on display and to market and advertise and like i don't know i mean as as someone who watches a lot of basketball and likes a lot of basketball i watched a game like that and i was like wow this should really be promoted by the NBA like you know we and and should stand as proof that we don't need an LA team in the Western Conference Finals we don't need it to be the Lakers versus Brooklyn in the finals to get to keep people interested in good basketball now of course I'm not naive I know that's what Adam Silver still wants I know that's the type of series that would still make more money and and frankly if it ends up being Utah versus Phoenix in the Western Conference Finals Adam Silver's probably going to shit his pants. But <laughs> I thought it I mean I thought it was really fun. And and honestly, I think anyone who actually likes basketball and like just really enjoys watching it and isn't so focused on the WWE type narratives of like, "Oh, I only watch want to watch basketball because I'm 14 years old and I want to comment on Instagram about LaFraud and like losing rings <laughs> and shit like that." Like people who are not those people would enjoy a series like that. They would get a lot out of it and and it would be a good time. It was an objectively fun game if we're talking about the Jazz game alone. It was just fun. I mean, it was back and forth. It was two teams that were playing their best basketball at that time. The Suns going into it with a six-game win streak and then finishing it with a seven-game win streak, uh, ultimately winning that game. And uh, and then the Jazz, of course, the best record in the league, and they're just constantly on a winning streak because that's what happens when you have the best record in the league. That's what it takes so they're really, really, really good teams playing um, some really, really good basketball. And I'll be honest, I think that the buildup, sort of the lead into the game was less fun. than once the game started, it was just basketball again, and it was really fun. And I had these sort of flashbacks of watching the the Suns versus the Lakers in, you know, 2010 or before that, you know, 2006, watching the Suns and the Spurs and in, in just in TNT games or ESPN games in the past and just sort of flashbacks. So, yeah, I remember what it was like to be watching a regular season game specifically that mattered this much in the way that if the Suns lost, it really wouldn't have mattered too much. But I think there's like an element of what can we learn from this? Of course, this is what you and I are going to talk about with the rest of this episode, along with the Clippers game, but less so because of the back-to-back. That just, it, it gave me a nice sort of nostalgic feeling of, uh, I had these flashbacks of Steve Nash in my mind and, and you know, like the analysts that we were hearing talk about this, whether it be Charles Barkley or, uh, you know, the guys that do the call the games for ESPN, I had flashbacks of that and it was kind of fun. I did enjoy it. The basketball itself was fascinating too. You know, these, these are two teams with the jazz, uh, that are really good. And I think they did some interesting things. I think the... Clippers game weirdly felt almost more like a playoff game in that like teams are trying the teams were both trying really interesting stuff in the Clippers game you know the Jazz team the Jazz uh, game as well just the Clippers something about the Clippers game felt more like a chess match to me am I wrong in that feeling did you feel that at all 
Well, it was physical, first of all, and and that might have been part of what gave you that impression, right? Like anytime someone gets ejected. Right. Multiple players. Yeah, multiple players in in that case, that's going to be part of what goes into it. Yeah, so that 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 could have been part of it, and um, this is a fascinating game. I do have one stat. We're gonna get what we what we're gonna get into here. Both Sam and I pulled some things that we learned from these games, and we're just gonna go back and forth and have conversations about some things that both of us wanna, thought were interesting. I want to quickly point out that is the general premise of the episode. One of the things I'm gonna talk about is relevant to the Wizards game too. So yeah, I think. Like, I think Suns fans are experiencing something new now that we haven't experienced in a while, which is you're a guaranteed playoff team. You get to this part of the season where there's only 20 games left and you start to think, like, what's the point? <laughs> you know, it's like, right. like even I had the thought, should I even tune into this Wizards game? Of course, I I did. And I still enjoyed it. It was a great game. And part of that is because I know I have to talk about it every week. But <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's kind of just like you want every game to project something you wanted to tell you something about projecting your value towards the playoffs. And sometimes when you're playing these teams like the Wizards and the Suns upcoming, they have games against like the Heat and uh, and the Spurs. And, and just not every single one of these opponents, it may feel like, takes on the utmost importance. That's a pretty new thing, I think, for Suns fans, <laughs> where, where we're kind of just like we get to this point in the season and it's not about player development. Mm-hmm. It's not about, oh, mm-hmm. we know we're going to go in and we're going to lose every game, but give me Dragon Bender and Josh Jackson off the bench so <laughs> you know for 35 minutes so I can just like pray for development. It's actually about, well, we know that these games, you know, not, not every single one carries the same amount of importance, but you're still vying for some level of playoff seating and, and you still want to you know, you want to finish off strong in, in any way you can. It does bring up a quick conversation that, that maybe we could have about mm-hmm. do you think there's going to be any type of load management, you know, in, in the next, in the ensuing weeks for this team? It's not really I'd something be, we've thought about. I'd be surprised. The schedule gets a little tough, especially with Eastern Conference teams coming up here. So I'd be surprised if that were to happen. But also, Chris Paul seems to pride himself on playing every game that he possibly can. Um, at least after he left Houston, he he was very proud of that in OKC. I think he only missed two games, including one of them was like for a funeral or something that was like personal reasons. Uh, so I'd be surprised if that were to happen. Um, it's weirdly, I almost feel like Mikael Bridges is one of the only guys that might need a, a game or two off. He had that heel problem, and it clearly affected his play uh, for multiple games in a row. You can't you can't bench him. Like I don't think you can. He's played every game since middle school, and I think that's the actual stat. It Mikhail is the Bridges. actual stat. Yeah, yeah, that would be a tragedy if, yeah. <laughs> if Mikhail missed. A I game. don't. I personally don't care, but it obviously clearly means something to him. But uh, uh, I doubt it would happen. So I, it would surprise me a lot. I think you know the Lakers are actually doing okay, better than I thought they would do as far as like winning games. The defense seems to have held up relatively well. Drummond is playing all right, so the Lakers aren't really dropping in the standings as fast as they could be, you know, if they did drop in a, in a way where they could be a two, seven matchup, if the Suns stay in the second, then you can maybe consider some chicanery to try and drop or try and avoid that matchup. But I don't think that the Suns are going to do that in any way. I think they're going to try and play the best possible basketball at all times, because that's what Chris Paul teams uh, do. That's just what they do. Yeah, I agree. And, and I also think, there's an upcoming stretch starting next week where you just play contender after contender after contender. That's going to be such a critical portion of the schedule for for Suns fans, and we're going to be talking about every game in great detail. So you can't afford to load manage anyone for that, but there are a few other games, like as we get to the very end of the schedule, I don't think anyone would blame, like Chris Paul. You need him for the playoffs. 
I wouldn't blame him if if you benched him for a game or two. Yeah. I don't think he's going to do it. I also don't think it would be a bad idea to do it, though. <laughs> yeah. But we'll cross that bridge eventually. Yeah. I have one surprise stat to throw at you that we haven't talked about before we get into the things that we learned from uh, this last week. Uh, and it is that in the last five games, small sample size theater here, the Suns are 11th in pace. 11th in pace. The wow. top half of the league. And in the last five games, they passed 100.7 for the first time of any stretch of the season. They were at over 100 in pace. Can you can you believe that? First of all, does that surprise you? And can you believe it? Well, it does because I don't feel like I've seen an unusual amount of transition offense out of the Suns this week. First of all... This should tell you something about how fried my brain is at this point in the year. Like before Utah, LA, and uh, Washington, what what are even the other two games in there? I can't remember anymore. Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> who did like who did we play last Monday? I couldn't tell you anymore. Uh, we played Houston. Maybe was that recent? That seems we, right. Uh, let me maybe look. like so. You know, I don't know. It kind of depends on uh, on opponent. But I will tell you, eleventh in pace, Houston. Yeah, and that's Miami. that's Houston and Miami. Is that right? No. Yeah, OKC, Houston, Utah, LA Clippers, OKC. and Washington were those five. OKC teams. and Houston. Yeah. Right. Okay, so that's yeah. two bad teams. Yeah, but I think that the Suns were pushing the pace. Washington, I think, was obvious. But the, in the Clippers and Utah games as well, specifically Devin Booker, I thought. And actually, if you look yeah. at the pace in... in uh, if you sort by fe- to February 1st, by the way, a lot of the stats that I look at, I now... Start at February 1st because I think the Suns had a learning period at the beginning of the season and things started to click on February 1st. And if you sort all stats, I'm going to call that like the beginning of this real season for the Suns at this point. Uh, if you sort by that, then you can see like a, a, a different team. And I think those stats are the ones that matter the most when you're thinking about the postseason. If you sort by February 1st, the Suns actually jump up to 21st in pace in that time, which is obviously not very fast. But the Suns were 29th in pace uh, on the entire season as recently as a few weeks ago. So to jump up to 21st in pace in that time means that they're speeding up lately. And I think that has something to do with Devin Booker scoring a little bit more recently. And I think, mm-hmm. actually, if you sort by by pace on the individual players, Dario Saric and Cameron Payne are at the top. Obviously, okay. Chris Paul's still in the top that. five or six, though. Like Chris Paul wow. still is pushing the ball a little bit, but I do think that the bench makes a little bit more of a concerted effort to do it. Yeah, and and I wonder how much of that is natural, like just yeah. naturally conducive to the way that Cameron Payne plays, or if it's like a specific coaching thing where Monty kind of takes Cam aside and, and Dario and whoever and says, this is the way we want you to play when Chris Paul's not in the game. Um, it's, it's kind of something that I don't think we've ever gotten a clear-cut answer out of Monty about. Yeah, I Monty actually has talked about that the Suns need to speed up the pace. He did a few, probably a few months ago, maybe a month, month and a half ago, he made a, a point of talking about that after a game um, that they did lose. So I think there was, it's not by accident. I think it is a little bit by design. Now, does that mean that Chris Paul is going to stop having whoever's taking the ball out, uh, bowl it down the court so that Chris Paul can take as long as possible to pick it up and have as much time possible on the shot clock? No, he's going to continue to do that. But on live ball turnovers and on rebounds, I think the Suns are more likely to push the ball than they were previous in the season, and I think that's a good good thing, especially if the ball is in Devin Booker or Mikhail Bridges' hands, who have been phenomenal in transition so far this season in fact Mikhail Bridges is I think in on the Suns the best around the rim of anyone on the Suns so far so Mm. 
Uh, pretty crazy stat. I just came across that when I was doing some research and I thought we had to talk about that before we get into anything else. Um, I hope they continue to do that. I think that it's a good way to get easy points and I'm not sure if it'll work in the playoffs. Things transition defense gets better in the playoffs when teams are more aware of it. You can't catch teams off guard a little as much, uh, but I do hope they uh, continue to do that. Yeah, well, we saw some uh, some really fancy passes from Devin Booker to Mikhail Bridges last night. Yeah, that was like envisioning that in the playoffs would be fun. Oh, Those guys yeah. are are just Taylor. You know, Chris Paul in the equation. It's nice when he pushes a little bit, but you kind of know you're not going to get too much of that out of him. But just Booker and, and Bridges is a match made in heaven for transition offense. So hopefully yeah. the Suns look to exploit it as much as possible. Yeah, somebody uh, said something on that highlight that if this team starts to have fun, you better watch out. <laughs> and I thought that was a really interesting observation because they're so deadly serious with Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Those guys never, they never really seem like they're having fun <laughs> while playing the game of basketball. Devin Booker, I think in a lot of ways, has not been allowed to have fun in his NBA career. In that, because the Suns have lost so much that if he showed any sign that he was enjoying himself on the court... People were going to roast him online unfairly, especially for a player uh, that has accomplished the things that he accomplished at a young age individually. The teams were always bad, and that was not necessarily his fault. But people still make fun of him for enjoying the fact that he scored 70 points in an NBA game at 20 years old. Still, right now, currently, the record of points in a game for any active NBA player. Uh, So to see him smile... After that play, for those who missed it, he threw an insane pass to Mikhail Bridges and he smiled when somebody said, wow, if this team starts to have fun, you better watch out. I just thought that was a great observation because they don't. And if they start to uh, control the game in a way that allows them to make it fun, the way like the Warriors did uh, when the Warriors were at their peak, then that's pretty fun. They're kind of the new Spurs in a way. Right. Right? Like, doesn't it kind of feel like that? The system is pretty similar, and they're just a bunch of fundamentally sound robots who, like, don't crank out a lot of highlight plays. That's sort of the way this team operates. You know, they need... They've got a long way to go. They need to win a few titles and kind of string a a dynasty together (laughs) before you can really compare them to the Spurs. But but I kind of get a similar vibe out of what this team team is, and hopefully that's not too offensive to anyone who has repressed memories of the 2000 Spurs or whatever. But <laughs> I, it, like, you should take that as a compliment because that's one of the greatest dynasties the, this sport has ever seen. Yeah, who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, sustained excellence over 20 years. Um, let's get into the things that we learned from this week. Uh, I'll start. I have a few. You have a few. Um, the thing I want to start with is DeAndre Ayton because DeAndre Ayton has been really, really, really good lately. And I think some games very loudly very good. And some games kind of quietly good. And even when he's quietly good, it can result in 18 points and 11 rebounds. He had multiple games where he had uh, more than five offensive rebounds uh, in a row. Like two, He had two games in a row where he had like 11 offensive rebounds combined in this. And I think that was the Jazz and the Clippers games. And when you look at those games, those offensive rebounds were vital, vital, vital to the success of the team in those specific games. And I think when you specifically look at his importance in these games, when you're playing teams like the Jazz and the Clippers, you're playing teams that play a playoff style of defense. They understand that they have a bunch of smart and capable and versatile defenders. And that means that they're pretty confident switching in a lot of cases. When teams switch, offensive rebounds become really important because the Suns will often attack switches with guards. 
If you're attacking the switch with a guard, that means that if the if the if the shot misses, DeAndre Ayton's likely going to be under the rim with a guy that's much smaller than him. What's important for DeAndre Ayton in those scenarios is to roll hard to the basket and to establish position for rebounding before the shot goes up. And if you watch clips of him in these games, he was doing exactly that. Now, that does not always lead to an offensive rebound. Often, it's a lot of effort that's maybe considered wasted. But when you do it consistently, play after play after play, that's how you end up with seven offensive rebounds in a game like he did in this last week. And I was really impressed with that specific thing. Offensively, I think he's done a good job in general. But I think finding himself in the right places under the rim, specifically against good teams who will consistently switch on the Suns, has been really important. I've been impressed with him. I have some more things I want to talk about, but I want to get your thoughts on him. What have you thought about DeAndre Ayton, specifically in those two games against the Clippers and Jazz? He was great. Uh, In this whole week, I brought up the stats. He averaged 19 points, 11 rebounds, two blocks on 70% shooting from the field. Right there, that's a fantastic stat line. But as we've talked about with DA in the past, you know, it's not necessarily about the stats. I think rebounding is one of those stats that's very important. You can track, especially in the playoffs, You know, I think you were touching on this uh, just a minute ago. As teams place more of an importance on transition defense, it's typically the guards and the wings who are going to drop back and force most of that transition defense, right? So it almost puts a greater importance on actually your bigs to to fight for offensive positioning. And if anyone's going to get those offensive rebounds, it's going to be your big man. So I like seeing Aiden there to, to vie for those rebounds. But... At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if he's averaging 19 and 11. It doesn't matter if he's averaging, you know, he doesn't need to get 30 points and and 20 rebounds. You know, he can still have a very big impact on the game just by bringing that consistent energy um, every night. And, you know, I think in that, I don't, I wish I could remember, I think it was the Jazz game. He created like close to double digit points, close to 10 points just through his offensive rebounding mm-hmm. It's just like. You can't see a clear impact on the game than through plays like that. Yeah. Um, very critical clutch plays that that ran through DeAndre Ayton. Um, yeah. Now, granted, I, I think there were other times that were interesting during these two games where uh, he wasn't even he wasn't even on the floor for certain possessions in the late fourth quarter when when you know you really needed to defend a team in a specific way and they decided to go small ball and that's a very interesting thing we can talk about but Aiton took every minute that he was given he was ran to like high 30s maybe even 40 plus minutes in, in one of those two games I think again in the jazz game which is something he's rarely done in his career maybe only two or three times and he responded to it with an energy level that i think we've we haven't always seen from him this season so i was really happy with with just his effort i'm glad you brought up the minutes and i think the jazz game was as far as chess matches go uh sarge was getting killed we're going to talk about sarge more in a minute but sarge was getting (laughs) killed by gobert which is a terrible matchup for him gobert is massive and sarge is an undersized center which can work in a lot of matchups but doesn't really work in that scenario i mean he's a backup center playing against a starter that's not going to work i mean there's a reason that Sarich works and there's a reason that deandre ayton works and that's the type of matchup where deandre ayton is even more necessary than even just any regular average game uh so that means that he was matching a lot of minutes with gobert and that means he plays a lot of minutes in the game but specifically getting in the right position offensively when you're not getting the ball because he's not necessarily going to get the ball, uh, takes a ton of effort. And when you're playing a lot of minutes, that means you have to do it over and over and over again, even when you're not going to get the rebound or you're not going to get the pass. 
And Chris Paul has commonly talked about it with DeAndre Ayton. You just have to push through being tired. A lot of cases with DeAndre Ayton, the reason that sometimes he's not in position for offensive rebounds is because he's tired, I think. And when you have games like this, and I've brought up this potential possibility with DeAndre Ayton where maybe he will be the best version of himself in the playoffs because he understands the moment and he's going to push through being tired just like he did in the Utah game, just like he did in the Clippers game, even in a loss. I think he did really well in that game for the record. And that's what's going to put him in position to succeed. What he has gotten good at, and I think credit to Devin Booker on this as well, is what has become known as the Kobe assist. And for those who don't know what this is, it is when a guard like Devin Booker attacks the basket so hard that the big has to help on the guard and he just throws it up at the basket. Now, whether or not that goes in or they call a foul uh, matters less because when a big is out on Devin Booker to contest, if we have a big that's in the right position and rolled hard to begin with, they're perfectly in position for that offensive rebound put back. That's called a Kobe assist. Get the rebound is what Kobe would say as far as <laughs> passing the ball. And that's what Shaq did. Shaq had a lot of those. And I think both of them have gotten good at it because sometimes it's hard to get that pass off to DeAndre in scenarios. And it's better to just get the shot up at the rim when you're in that position and trust that DeAndre Ayton can get the rebound. And in these games he did. I still believe DeAndre Ayton could lead the NBA in offensive rebounding. He's pretty high up there in offensive rebound, but he could lead the NBA in offensive rebounding if he specifically wanted to. Now, this is not necessarily a coaching thing. I don't think it is. It takes a ton of effort to do it, and whether or not he does it in a regular game matters a lot less to me than if he's going to do it in the playoffs, and at this point, I'm starting to believe that he will. One more stat to throw at you, and I want to get your thoughts on this too. Sure. Since February 1st, the season started, right? That's where I'm going to say the season really started with the sun. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> DeAndre Ayton has, there's one stat. You talked about the stats don't really matter. The one stat that mattered to me with DeAndre Ayton throughout the season is were the Suns better with him on the floor? And for the beginning of the season where I think he was struggling, pushing through being tired and struggling with effort consistently in a ways that made him look like a rookie <laughs> in a lot of those games. That bothered me because the Suns were worse with him on the floor. And when you miss a rotation as a center, the entire defense collapses. Since February 1st, Aiton is number one on the Suns in net rating. Number one on the Suns in net rating. Did you know that, first of all? Uh, I don't want to say that I knew that. I didn't know that he was number one. But it's related to the segment that I have planned <laughs> next. So I, well, knew yes. part of, I knew part of it. And I'll set you up for that because he's at 12.7, but Saric, he finally passed Saric. Saric is still actually yeah. pretty high in net rating for the Suns at an insane 11.8. But 12.7 for DeAndre Ayton is insanely high. Not only is it the best at the Suns, in that time frame since February 1st, it's one of the top in the league. And just like Saric is actually still one of the top in the league. This is a weird stat, and I think this is related to his struggles lately. Out of the starting five, Mikhail Bridges is actually the lowest in net rating in that specific stat where he was the best on the team for two years in that time frame. Uh, that means that even Jay Crowder has passed him. Devin Booker and Chris Paul also um, have passed him. So kind of a weird stat from Mikael Bridges that we'll probably fix as he gets healthy. Um, but any other thoughts on DeAndre? And then you can feel free to go to yours. Not really. Um, I kind of want to challenge you about something. It's not even a challenge because mm -hmm. I agree with you, but yeah, 
I want to, I want to give you the opportunity to get the record straight on something. So I think it was last week we talked about rebounding is one of those stats that doesn't really oh, matter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this week we're talking about how much we like offensive rebounding. Absolutely. I want to give you the floor to talk about the the nuance there because I think some people might miss that. I think <laughs> or, or misconstrue it. Yeah, rightfully well, so. And and fair because but I think for the record we weren't talking about DeAndre Ayton when I said that previously. What I what is the best way to view rebounding? And there has been sp- specific statistical studies by this by cleaning the glass in five thirty eight that I was referencing, and I should have brought up those articles. I can try to find links for them later about rebounding in that rebounding itself by itself is not a good statistic to determine whether or not a player is going to be impactful while they're For on example, the floor. For example, just to give people an example, Russell Westbrook or Luka Doncic getting right. 10 rebounds in a game where nine of those 10 are uncontested defensive rebounds where yes. like a big lets them have it are the types of rebounds that are not, it doesn't really lead to winning in any sense. Yeah, I also think Andre Drummond, if he's paid yes. twenty five million dollars a year because he makes thir- or because he gets thirteen to fifteen rebounds every single game, you're making a massive mistake. He has mm-hmm. to do more than that in order to be impactful on the floor. Getting rebounds because you're tall is something that most tall players can do. So you never want to use rebounding as an individual statistic to determine whether or not a player is good because then you can easily think that Andre Drummond is better than DeAndre Ayton, for example, which he very much is not. Just because he's capable of getting more rebounds does not mean he's a more impactful player. There's so much more around basketball that matters uh, in order for that to be an impactful stat. Uh, so that's basically where I fall on that. I mean, obviously, obviously rebounds and the context of the individual rebounds matter the most and i think mm-hmm. you you using russell westbrook and luka Doncic actually is a really great uh really great yeah. example yeah i mean not every rebound is created equally i think almost always offensive rebounds are more valuable than defensive rebounds but it's also about the scheme of the team how that team plays transition defense how many bodies are packed around you that you're actually we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fighting with to get the board in the first place. Some rebounds are, I don't know, it's just one of a million ways where like I understand why we keep the same old simple box score in basketball that we've had for decades now, but some stats in basketball just don't do a great job of actually telling you all that much about the game. Somebody has to get a rebound. Right when a shot goes up, somebody yeah. has to get a rebound. So that that by itself 
minimizes the ability to use that stat to determine who's the best basketball player on, on your team. So the economy is made up of real people doing real stuff and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Let's uh, let's talk about a guy who doesn't get rebounds. Yeah. You like that segue? Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> I mean, he's okay at it. <laughs> he's okay at it. Let's talk about Dario Sharch. So yeah. uh, the, the contrast... Right, we were talking about the net ratings. Here's the stat that I have. When we say that Aiton has been really good with his net ratings and, and his impact on the Suns, since the All-Star break, no, it's not It's not February 1st, it's not when the season started, but the filter I applied is at the All-Star break. The Suns are a plus 12.5 with DeAndre Aiton at center. They are a plus 1.2 with Dario Saric at center, which is almost completely flipping what we saw for the first two months of the season. The first two months of the season, we routinely saw, despite all the evidence of our eyes telling us that Booker and Paul and Aiton, these are and, and Bridges even are these are the most talented players on the Suns. They're the they're the best players. Uh the starting lineup had these negative net ratings and it would be campaign and Dario Saric would check in, Cam Johnson too, would check in for fifteen or twenty minutes a game. They would have a plus ten or a plus fifteen, and they would routinely save the Suns starting lineup mm-hmm. from being pretty mediocre. And that was the way things used to go uh, at the beginning of the year. Since the All-Star break, it's been completely flipped Mm -hmm. campaign uh as well as dario saric uh, a lot of times these guys kind of look mediocre and they're not bad i would definitely say that dario has had his moments in fact i think uh, a lot of times online he's taking too much heat i think he does still have some some really decent games but mostly the scouting report is out on him people know what he's going to do on offense they know that he has to rely on his um intelligence and that he really just doesn't have the athleticism to play like a normal nba center and so as a result we're seeing a lot more instances where the suns are basically just treading water with sharich Mm -hmm. and that's the best you can hope for and so where do we go from here is we can talk about whether we think dario gets it back Mm -hmm. we can talk about whether there are alternative options uh for other guys you could play in the playoffs in certain situations uh, what we can't do is what we were doing a couple weeks ago and hope that you can go out and get another big uh, mm-hmm. who comes in and saves you. Because actually, a critical deadline passed this week, and uh, the, the deadline for ba- basically playoff rosters have to be set now. And the Suns did not add another player. They did not claim any players on waiver, uh, off of waivers. For instance, Kem Birch, who I talked about at the trade deadline, is going to Toronto. Um, that's a player that the Suns maybe could have tried to claim off mm-hmm. waivers if they had somehow convinced him this week. But the deadline passed. They can no longer do that. And so your roster is set. Dario Saric is your backup center. And there can't be any more fantasies about let's go out and get a different guy to, mm-hmm. to help us play physical. You have to work with what you have. Mm-hmm. So how can we do that? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, 
obviously we didn't expect him to remain a plus 20 no uh, no no no, <laughs> all no, no, no season and even and, and i even said that you know back when we released that video yeah three months ago about how good dario has been i said he's a plus 20 he's not going to be a plus 20 all year yeah but i think it's more so just about when the three-point shot isn't falling when the pump fake isn't fooling anybody Obviously, this guy isn't bringing too much value. Also, a lot of it, the defensive stats have regressed. That's hard, what I want to we, talk about. Yeah. As we expected. So I'll, I'll give the floor to you there. Yeah. Well, what I think, I'll just cover a little bit first about just my general impression of it. It's weird when he checks in the game, he immediately plays like he's been playing 20 minutes already. He looks exhausted. He's a little bit slower than he was to start the season, and his decisions are taking a split second longer. And for a player that relies on their brain over their body the decision making has to be very quick in order for it to work and if it's a little bit slow that's how he throws passes out of bounds instead of to cutters or um, that's how he pump fakes and then goes directly into the block instead of uh, actually getting the guy uh, on that pump fake and those types of decisions matter a lot for him I want to just preface all of what I'm saying with I think that there is an element of he needs to just play through this. There were times that other players struggled throughout the season. DeAndre Ayton struggled early. Devin Booker struggled early. Even Chris Paul <laughs> struggled at the beginning of the season where Dario was playing well throughout that time. Uh, so for him to struggle now, the Suns continue to win. Now, if he starts losing games for the Suns, maybe you start experimenting with Frank Kaminsky, weirdly, um, and seeing how that works, especially as he's shooting still over 40%, assuming he's healthy. And uh, and try it that way. But what concerns me more than that is, and I talked about this online as well, is it seems like teams are finding ways to specifically target Dario Saric on switches. The Suns switch almost everything with Dario Saric on the floor. And he's very, very good at reading switches in that he can switch onto a guy pretty quickly. But his foot, his foot speed is slow. He's not the fastest guy, and he's not capable of keeping up with guards. What I do like that he does is he plays up on guards enough that he's able to force them to drive where you might have time for help defense if you're forcing them to drive in those scenarios uh, and you're avoiding the three-point shot, which is good for a lot of players that the Suns could uh, wind up against in the playoffs. But the fact that oftentimes, like against the Clippers, he was lined up guarding Kawhi Leonard or he's lined Mm -hmm. up guarding Donovan Mitchell on the Jazz, that's not ideal for the Suns. So... If he continues to struggle with just being a step slower than I think he was at the beginning of the season, which could be even maybe he's sore, maybe he rolled an ankle at practice and they're not telling us about it. Maybe there's something there that we're not fully aware of. But if he continues to do that, I think the Suns have to figure out a way to maybe move him into more of a traditional drop coverage for a while to see how that would work. And I don't think they want to do that. But it's just how can you continue to do that when he's matched up against the best offensive players and it's just not working very well that that's what concerns me yeah all around the league we see that this is the downside of switching is it makes your scheme easy but it makes it very easy for the offense to pinpoint a mismatch because they know they can get any mismatch they want on the one weakest link whoever that is that you're throwing out there in this case it's Dario Sharch so yeah I I think he has to play through it and I think he will and you know like even last night Granted, it was only the Wizards, but he played well. He's had good games recently where he's played well. I I, I think a lot of it just comes back to that slow-footedness on defense and also struggling with the fact that 
the scouting report is out on him on offense and he just can't get any easy offense anymore the way he used to. Yeah. A lot of it is if it just if it just starts making more threes, it, it opens everything up a little bit because it opens the drive up, it opens a little extra passes on those drives, like everything will get a little bit better. Anything else in that one? Yeah, he's never been like the greatest shooter, right? No. That's kind of the problem. I'm I'm just looking here. Yeah, he's shooting 32% from deep since the All-Star break. Yeah. So obviously you hope that that can get better, but just kind of the, the way that Dario operates, like he's a 35-36% shooter naturally. That's what he is for his career. So hoping that he becomes your 40% sharpshooter, your your Ryan Anderson, Mirza Toledovic, whoever else you can think of historically, that would mm-hmm. kind of fit that archetype. He's just he's not one of those, so it's tough. Yeah. Uh, I just you look at the stats and you look at how he was playing and then you look at like four games in a row where he didn't make a single three. It's hard to not wonder if there's something going on that's not been told, you know, that we haven't really heard about. That That's all I'll say. I don't know exactly what that would be, but it's just statistically guys don't just drop off that dramatically so quickly um, unless something happened. But I don't know. I guess we'll, we won't know. Um, all right. I'll move on unless you have anything else there. No, go go for it. Okay, so I think that the Clippers are going to be an insanely tough matchup for the Suns if they match up in the playoffs. Now, the Suns have done a good job winning important playoff, uh, important season series for the playoffs. Now, the Jazz was probably the most important one, assuming the Suns can actually end up with the number one seed if the Jazz and the Suns tie. The Jazz don't appear to be slowing down, but that team has also been insanely healthy. If one of those guys drops off on that team, uh, you could see the Suns potentially catching up, like if Donovan Mitchell misses five or six games or something like that. Maybe they'll be better without him. Uh, But they did lose... (laughs) Couldn't couldn't (laughs) resist the shot there. (laughs) Yeah. He's ninth on his own team in true shooting percentage. I brought that up online too. Uh with the Clippers, the Suns have now lost the season series against the Clippers. Now, one of the early games I think matters a little bit less, and I think there's another caveat added on to... <laughs> it matters less because it wasn't before February 1st. It was before, it was before or, the season was, started, yeah. Yeah, it was before February 1st, of course. Exactly. We, we all know that was preseason. Yeah, it was preseason. That was before the season started. Uh, so, with this recent game, obviously there's a caveat on second night of a back-to-back after an overtime game. It wasn't even a regular game. It was a game where Chris Paul played like 46 minutes or something insane like that. Uh, but just looking at that team, with Kawhi and Paul George, yes, the Suns have two guys to match up with those guys, but one of the advantage of having two guys is that you have two smart defenders that can now play help defense. I think you take away their ability to play help defense when both Mikhail and Jay are now guarding one of those two guys. Now, we played them without Serge Ibaka, too. They get even better with Serge Ibaka. With two big wings, it makes it pretty difficult to switch. With the Suns have remained very good at switching, and their switching defense has been good. With a guy like Kawhi Leonard, he wants that. Like The Suns had to play a style of defense that was avoiding the switch at a certain point in this game when Torrey Craig was matched up on Kawhi Leonard, and Rondo kept screening for Kawhi specifically to try to get campaign to switch onto Kawhi the Suns were hard hedging this is something the Suns rarely rarely do where campaign would just run out at Kawhi and then sprint back to Rondo as quickly as possible to give Craig enough time to get around the screen and stay on Kawhi that's a sign that the Suns regular defensive scheme does not work against this team 
especially when they have the ability to go extra small. Now, without Serge Ibaka, maybe they didn't do, maybe they won't do that once they have him. But what they did in this game is they had a series basically with Marcus Morris at center. Now, that's tough because it specifically tries to target DeAndre Ayton with really fast, big, and strong wings and also guys who can shoot threes. And Ayton, for as good as he is, has to play a step back in order to maximize his effectiveness on defense, which means that guys will feel confident shooting that three-pointer over them. And even Rondo. Like, I know that people like to clown on Rondo. Um, and he hit that three in, in Chris Paul's face that essentially sealed the game at some point. But Rondo shot 40% from three in the playoffs last year. Like, this is this is a different Rondo. Yes, in the regular season, he's going to shoot badly. And he shoots 100% when playing Chris Paul. Exactly. Just exactly. Fueled, fueled by pure hatred exactly. of that so, man. <laughs> I look at this team, and I think the Suns have some interesting things that they, they can and will probably try if they get matched up with the Clippers. But I look yep. at this team, and I look at Denver... And I think those two teams, outside of the Lakers, if they're fully healthy, which is a mismatch for everyone, I look at those two teams, and I and I think if we meet up against any of those two teams or either of those two teams in the second round, that's tough, man. That's really, really tough. Yeah, and we knew all of these teams were going to be tough, but I do think um, the Clippers have become underrated somehow. Uh, first of all, Paul George just phenomenal shot making the entire game the Clippers don't win if they're not able to shoot 49% from deep while the Suns shoot 25% so there is an element of luck in the NBA these days as teams shoot more and more three-pointers variance plays a huge role in each individual game so sometimes we look for little things of maybe I could have done this maybe this team could have done that but a lot of times it comes down to three-point luck that being said the Clippers have like eight 40 percent three-point shooters and Paul George is having the best shooting season of his career and he's always been a good shooter uh, at least for like the past five or six years so tip your cap to him uh going back to what you were talking about the Suns really like to switch these days and switching doesn't work on the Clippers so maybe you would think well why you know why can't they try running a drop for instance uh against Utah the Suns ran a drop and basically they know that Utah is not a very good mid-range team so they had Aiden play back and they wanted to bet on either we're going to force Conley and Mitchell to beat us in the mid-range where we know they're not super comfortable or we're going to allow them to take these pull-up threes which is what happens when you run a drop coverage teams can walk into pull-up threes but we'd rather have them take these slightly tougher off the dribble threes as opposed to say you know letting Rudy Gobert have whatever he wants at the rim every play or letting Joe Ingles shoot like wide open corner threes right like it was better than those alternatives well against the Clippers that doesn't work either. Like, that allowed the Suns to win the game against Utah, but it doesn't work against the Clippers because, again, you've got these two big wings who are just like Kawhi feasts in the mid-range, and you've got all these three-point shooters who can walk into pull-up threes. They've got a really dynamic offense in a way where, yes, uh, like, a lot of it was just three-point variance as to the reason the Suns lost, and I honestly don't think the Suns really did anything wrong in that game. It's just you look forward to what it would be like if you played this team in a full series. They're just good at everything. And yeah. and I don't think there's an easy way to answer the question, how do you guard the Clippers? Yeah, there were there were times like with the Lakers run last season where uh, Dwight Howard just doesn't play a series or JaVale McGee just doesn't play a series. and Or, you know, like maybe they play the first game and then slowly they get phased out. I think that's the type of thing that could happen with Dario Saric against the Clippers with as valuable as Dario can be in some scenarios. 
the Clippers' ability to attack you in so many different ways means that the Suns might be forced to go small without DeAndre Ayton on the floor against them because they have just so many ways to attack you um, that you need as much versatility as possible defensively. And if you don't have that defensive versatility the way DeAndre Ayton does and Dario Saric does not, then maybe that's why you got Torrey Craig. Right now you can have, instead of Dario coming off the bench first, you have Torrey come in and the Suns play super small, which could force them, by the way, I hate people are going to hate to hear this, into more isolation possessions on offense. But you know that they will have to get better at that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that with my last point here. Um, but I just look at the Clippers and I think, I I hope we don't. I hope that the Clippers and the Nuggets somehow play earlier before the Suns do. Uh, so at the very least, we the path does not have both of them. I think you've got a chance against the Nuggets. I mean, they're going to be hard too. I still I'm still holding yeah. on to that Lakers Clippers first round series. Have yeah, one of be, them knock the other out. That would be great uh, as well. So we're gonna we're gonna come back to obviously matchups in the playoffs as this season goes along. But uh, what's your next thing, Sam? My next one, I'm gonna keep bringing up some of these same contenders that we've been talking about this season because I actually want to have a conversation, and this is more related to the Wizards game. Free throws. The Sun shot seven free throws <laughs> last night. Which is just like ridiculous. Like I, I actually looked it up, Mike. Uh, how many points did the Suns have last night? Was it like one thirty-four? Uh, yeah, something like that. One thir- I think it was one thirty-four. I'd have to double check. They but. scored seventy-seven points in the second half. In all of NBA history, the most points in in in, in any NBA game where a team shot only seven free throws or less in the game was 134 uh, 134 points that the Suns got <laughs> wow. last night. It was a weird it was I think they were tied with one other team that that had gotten it before. But it was just a weird game. You're not supposed to score that many points when you shoot that few free throws. And I think it's interesting because routinely and you're going to hear these conversations come up again if you listen to national pods if you listen to what national analysts are saying about the suns they're gonna if they haven't necessarily seen a lot of the team they're gonna take a glance down the stat sheet and they're gonna say what can i pick at here and the stat that keeps getting picked at the suns are 29th in free throw attempts per game and people are going to look at that and they're going to say well that's definitely going to stop them in the playoffs because it means you're not you know you're not being aggressive and looking for contact you're not getting easy points you're leaving points on the table i feel like we haven't had a conversation about how we feel about this in quite a long time so i want to turn it back on you how do you feel about the suns being 29th and yeah uh, in free throws per game do you think it impacts their ability to win a championship this year so i've i've looked at this i wish um, i would have had my research on this before but I've looked at this just in the past and I've looked at teams that have won the championship and I looked at their free throw rates over the course of the season and there's one team that stands out as a team that was very good at winning championships and winning games without uh, taking a lot of free throw attempts can you guess what team that is is it the Spurs it's the Warriors. <laughs> oh, oh, it's the, yes. Shooting. I, I think the team a, that's good at shooting. That there's makes a sense. trade-off, exactly. There's a trade-off between free throws and shooting threes because if you shoot a lot of threes, you tend to not get into the paint. You tend to not drive a lot more. And I think driving on guys is the easiest way to draw free throws. Um, so to me, there's a, the obvious trade-off between free throws and three-point shooters. I would prefer the Suns to have more three-point shooters and I would prioritize three-point shooters over uh, free throws specifically because of Devin Booker and, and Devin Booker's 
ability to drive with the right amount of space. It's difficult to hold him one-on-one when he has that that full energy bar, if you will. He can get by anyone. And I'm going to talk more about mm. that in a second here um, because it's all about whether or not he does. Uh, the spacing matters. In fact, uh, one of, some of our friends with NBA Math posted a statistic about spacing around superstars. And oh, that was a uh, people index, I think. Yeah, people index. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, Krishna, uh, I believe, is his name. I'll, I'll tweet it out tomorrow again. Uh, but the stat was about the amount of spacing around superstars in the league. Kawhi Leonard was number one with the Spurs. The Spurs basically have the best spacing around Kawhi Leonard. Number two, though, was Devin Booker. And that spacing matters a lot. So to me, if you're looking at it as a trade-off between free-throw shooting and, and three-point shooting, I, I think that being on the side of three-point shooting in that specific debate is the right way to go. But it's not necessarily a trade-off between those two things. You know, The mm-hmm. Warriors were the obvious standout there. So I think the Suns can find ways to get more free throws. I can't I don't think you can put that entirely on Devin Booker. I think he does a lot no. of that already and he and he finds ways to do that. DeAndre Ayton needed needed to get better and got better. He yeah. still needs to get better because he's I think, still he's still a very contact averse big. Yes. Yeah. And and, his and so speed, and Chris Paul. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, Chris Paul's Chris Paul's pretty contact averse as well. That's actually and, and campaign. I was just gonna say like all these guys are. You know, campaign likes going in there and throwing up these little dainty floaters you know it's just kind of how all of them operate if they actually try to shove their body in a little bit but i have another point i want to bring up which is i think there are eight contenders this year there's five contenders that we routinely talk about in the west the suns are one of them and then you toss in uh brooklyn milwaukee and philly in the east gives you eight the suns are 29th in free throw attempts per game denver is 28th Mm-hmm. The Clippers are 27th. Mm-hmm. The Bucks are also in the bottom 10. And then, you know, some of these teams are very good. Philly draws more free throws than any other team in the NBA because they have Joel Embiid. But so going back to what the national analysts are talking about and some of this criticism, I do think there's an element of, well, you need to make up your mind. Are you discounting all of Phoenix, Denver, the Clippers, and Milwaukee because all of them don't get free throws? Or are you just kind of looking for something to nitpick Phoenix about? Yeah, I think there's an easy thing with uh, DeAndre. If you look at DeAndre Ayton, you can make that... For for people sort of outside of us, like this son's world that we live in, there's an easy person to point at with DeAndre Ayton. I think you can point your ire at him and say, why doesn't he get more free throws? I think if you watch the Suns enough, you understand his role and the fact that he's not really attacking from a position to get free throws in most cases means that he's not going to get a lot of them. When he catches the ball 15 feet away, I would prefer that he takes one dribble and tries to get that uh, foul or tries to get to the rim in order to get free throws more than I would prefer a fadeaway jump shot in a lot of cases. But I think even those have been cut down by a significant amount. Uh, so it's hard to really get mad at that. So I think there's a way to look at it. Is it a problem with the, the construction or is it a problem with way the, the way the players are playing? I think it's more of a problem with how the team is constructed more than I think it's a problem with the way the players are playing. I do not think that they need to drive into the lane recklessly to try to draw fouls. I do not think they need to play in a way that causes them to bait fouls because in the playoffs refs call less of those calls thank you thank they you do That's not really want point. to be embarrassed by players baiting them into blowing the whistle on the biggest stage they would prefer to let players play more than they would prefer to call cheap 
fouls. And so when you look at it, you could say maybe James Jones made a mistake. I don't think so. I prefer the shooting. I don't want them to play recklessly. So I can I'm I just fine say with how they do it. I think that's a great point, and I think people are so quick to point out three point variance as like, oh, you live or die by the three. Not enough people talk about these teams that live or die by the whistle because it's it's the same concept. It's just yeah. the most frustrating thing about NBA officiating. I think isn't necessarily like that the league has gone soft or anything it's the inconsistency that drives people nuts it's the fact that you're supposed to have these standards but then one ref is going to call the game completely differently than another ref and and i have the perfect stat to display that the sixers who i mentioned joel Embiid is an mvp candidate I, i don't think he should win but he's in the conversation and here's a reason why he's in the conversation when the Sixers play without Joel Embiid this year in a handful of games, they're like a 500, slightly under 500 team. When the Sixers play with Joel Embiid and he shoots less than 10 free throws, you you by some miracle hold that 300-pound man to less than 10 free throws. The Sixers are still 10-5. and five. Good. They're still a good team. They're one of the best teams in the East, but beatable. And they've lost some games in those types of games where officials are willing to swallow their whistle. They've lost some games against teams that they are objectively better than. Now, let's go to the games when Embiid gets the amount of free throws that he normally gets. Over 10 a game. The Sixers are 17-2 and two in those games. They turn from a team that is beatable, has a couple of weaknesses that are exploitable, to a team that's basically unstoppable. And so this is, as much as we talk about these teams that live or die by the three, you look at the other end of the spectrum, the Sixers live or die by the whistle. And so what happens if they go up against a ref that particularly doesn't like Joel Embiid or doesn't like the franchise or whatever, just decides that they want to call a game where they just let guys go at each other's throats for 48 minutes and he or she is not going to call anything. Well, the Sixers suddenly have a much greater chance of losing that game because Joel Embiid isn't going to get his usual easy free 10 points that he gets. So I think it's important to, to to make that point that you made and say that, you know, there's two sides to it. Yeah. There's a famous compilation that Houston Rockets fans love uh, to retweet and put online of James Harden getting fouled in the playoffs over and over and over again without the whistle. And here's the truth about that compilation. He's getting fouled. He is actually getting fouled in that compilation. But the refs do not call it because of his history of baiting them into calling fouls that maybe are not in the spirit of basketball. I think a lot of James Harden, when he bays fouls, are actual fouls. They just don't, it's not really in the spirit of the game. So, what happens if you play too recklessly, if you rely on it too much, you end up with a compilation like that? There's not a lot you can do. And ultimately, here's the truth about it if you're getting fouled on a shot, you're shooting a contested shot. I would prefer the Suns to work a little bit harder to get uncontested shots with the shooters that they have on the roster. Right. At least if you if you chuck 43s and you miss it, maybe it's just a bad shooting night, but at least you died by your own hands. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's, a there's, an element variable. Of, there's an element of I did that to myself. Whereas if you recklessly throw yourself at the rim and, uh, and you're just praying for a whistle and you don't get it, there's another variable, exactly. There's there's another variable added with the referees that you have to rely on, that you have to beg for, essentially, uh, the right calls. And yeah. I'm happy, personally, to be a team that's not in that position. Like, I look at those other teams down with us at the bottom, Milwaukee, Denver, the Clippers. I think any of those teams, just like us, could win a championship this year, and, and none of them gets to the free throw line. So what's right. the difference? Yeah, the truth is Devin Booker could shoot more free throws if he acted more. 
in the regular <laughs> season, but it's not a good habit. It's just not a good habit to create before the the end of the season and the postseason begins, and they stop calling that. All right. That was a good one. I'm glad you brought that one up. Uh, last one for me, unless you have anything else on that. Nope. Okay. Let's wrap it up here. Yeah. <laughs> My last one is that the Suns are terrified of teams trapping Devin Booker. And I used the word terrified. Maybe it's more accurate to say a little bit scared of. But in the Utah game, the Suns had a chance to win it in regulation. They passed the ball in and immediately saw that Donovan Mitchell was on Devin Booker. Now, that is a good matchup for Devin Booker. He should have been able to at least get to mid-range. I think Rudy Gobert, for as much as people like to clown on him, just forces guys to make decisions that they would not normally make because of his length and size. And I think Devin Booker shooting that really long two foot over the line uh, was more of a result of Rudy Gobert than it was Donovan Mitchell just Devin Booker can't get his own shot on Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell's too small. But what happened in that scenario is once he caught the ball at the top of the key, Donovan Mitchell was on him. The Suns players that were on the court immediately fled to the corners of the court and got as far away from Devin Booker as possible in order to avoid the trap. What could have happened, say anyone went to screen for Devin Booker is that they would have sent two guys at Devin Booker forced him to get the ball out of his hands. Now, all of a sudden somebody else is making a decision with two or three seconds left on the clock. That's the reason the Suns did not have a screen at that moment of the clock. I noticed that play when it happened and it's a little bit frustrating. I think Devin Booker could have done better in his execution, but I understand exactly why the Suns did not run a specific play with a screen when there's nine seconds left and you have a screen a trap can ruin everything especially when you don't have a lot of it for some reason nba teams don't trap a lot against the suns mike prada former guest of the podcast and i believe friend of the pod friend friend of of the the pod pod, we would say of course and possibly one of the smartest basketball minds in the media now i almost want to say in the world uh but i don't know there's some really (laughs) smart guys actually working for teams uh, but I think he's one of the smartest guys. Uh, I know he watches the Suns. He tweeted this. I'm going to read these tweets to you. I know you missed them, um, Sam. So he said, Clippers dabbled with hard traps on Devin Booker last night, both in pick and rolls and late clock ISOs. Phoenix should expect to see more of those in the playoffs. They have decent shooters, but opponents may dare them to show or to show it in a high-pressure situation and or run them off the line. The Suns have a couple solutions to that coverage. One, more Chris Paul, who's harder to trap, because he changes speeds and angles so well before the screen is set. Two, more decoy motion into Booker ball screens using the threat of their backdoor cutting skills to deter ball denials. And then he says, still, this gets at my biggest concern with the Suns in the playoffs. They're light on scoring options. Their offensive numbers are good in the regular season, but I wonder what happens when a team can lock in and to cut their timing, or yeah, to cut their timing, play alignment, and secondary transition scoring. So Mike Prada... And obviously with somebody that I very much respect smart. I actually disagreed with some of this from Mike Prado. I'll be honest, but here's the thing. He's smarter than me and he is scared of this specific thing happening, uh, for the Suns. I have some thoughts on this, but I want to get what you think on this, Sam. Uh, what do you think about teams starting to potentially do what Devin Booker calls junk defenses, which is trapping, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and that's two guys uh, going at the ball. 
I think it's a good bet for any team that wants to try it because I think Mike has has a lot of good points in that um, the Suns are now, I think, roughly a top 10 three-point shooting team, but they have a lot of unproven shooters. Jay Crowder, is Jay Crowder really a 38% three-point shooter? Is Mikhail Bridges really a 41% three-point shooter? I'm not 100% sure. You know, if you gave each of those guys, if you just left them in a gym and had them shoot 2003s, you know, would they shoot that percentage in the long, long, long term? Who knows? So... There's definitely an element of you want to make the other guys prove it. Now, how can the Suns respond? I think Mike brings up some some really good points there. We've talked in the past about with uh, regard to some of that decoy motion that he mentions. Um, you specifically, like Cam Johnson, ghost screening and then or, or flare screening and then running off towards kind of a, a motion three. He's one of your better motion shooters, so he's definitely kind of a, a guy you might want to put into a prove it scenario. Mikhail Bridges is one of the best cutters in the NBA, so any way you can find a way for him to kind of leverage his uh, balance his shooting gravity and his cutting gravity and make plays within that framework is also a really good um, really good idea for the Suns. However, you know, I, I guess I would push back a little bit on the notion that, like, I think this is the best way to guard the Suns. I still think probably the best way to guard the Suns is just switch everything Same. And, and kind yeah. of... Yeah, kind of switch everything, let it bog down into ISO offense that yep. frustrates the the Suns fan base so much as we know. Yep. I think the Suns are not the best shooting team in the NBA. Maybe this is going to be something that they run into if they get into the deeper, deeper later rounds of the playoffs, like the Western Conference Finals or the Finals. We're, we'll notice and we'll talk about this sort of thing if teams are consistently trapping Devin Booker. But otherwise, I think their shooters are good enough, like especially yeah. in the first round or maybe even the second round of the playoffs. I think... You could trap Devin Booker all game long, and occasionally you're going to run into games like against the Clippers, where the Sun shot 25% from deep. If Jay Crowder shoots two for eight, Cam Johnson shoots one for nine, you know, Mikhail Bridges shoots one for seven. If all those things land right for you in the same game and you trap Devin Booker, then you will win that game. If you force the ball into DeAndre Ayton's hands at right around the free throw line area and he's not comfortable making those passes to other guys you will win that game but as a sustainable strategy that you could run against the suns over an entire series i think they'll make enough shots that you just can't do that you could play devin booker like that a year or two ago and and you would have had a great amount of success with it that's how most teams played him at the time um, but these days i think for the most part you know it's credit to james jones over anyone else the roster assembled has enough around booker where you can't just trap him all the time and expect to win games yeah the number one thing there, Chris Paul, if you're secondary playmaker, which in these scenarios, he would be the secondary playmaker, is Chris Paul. You can do some good things with that. The issue is, one, you don't know when traps are coming, right? Teams are not going to trap on every single play, and if they do, you can see it coming. The only team in the history of basketball that has been forced to be guarded by traps on every single possession is the Warriors' death lineup pre-Kevin Durant where Steph Curry could kill anyone that goes under a screen. And they would trap every single time. Draymond Green would catch it in space, and they would get a lob dunk or a three-pointer on every single play. Now, the Suns don't really have a guy like that, but they do have Mikael Bridges. Now, Mikael, here's the thing. If Mikael Bridges is screening, they probably won't trap. If it's DeAndre Ayton, they might, because they want to force the ball into DeAndre Ayton's hands in space and then attack him if he tries to dribble with people swiping at the ball as much as possible. So this is where it can become a little bit scary because I think the best case scenario is, well, then if they're trapping every possession, then Chris Paul screens, Mikhail Bridges screens, then you can do something with that. Or even Cam Johnson, I think you can do some decoy screens with Cam and get him open threes. Uh, but if they're only trapping with DeAndre Ayton screens, they're, what they're trying to do in that case 
is get DeAndre and off the court, which is tough for the Suns, as we right. talked which about. Which you could do. You could bring Dario into the game, but then Dario needs to hold up his end of the bargain and play well on defense and right. rebound, and that's not always a guarantee. Yes. So I think it's interesting, and they the teams have not thrown this junk defense at the Suns very often. So I it's clear that the Suns were scared of it in that scenario in the end of the game, and that was the right choice. You want the ball in Devin Booker's hands if he has the right matchup. It's up to Devin Booker to get past Donovan Mitchell and not be too afraid. I think what's tough is he rarely gets calls in those end-of-game scenarios. He didn't want it to rely on whether or not he gets called for Rudy Gobert tackling him. So fair. We'll see how that goes. This is something to keep an eye on more than anything else because as the Suns get closer and closer to the playoffs, these specific ideas are going to be tested against them and the Suns need to have a counter and I think they have the the roster versatility, thanks to James Jones, to actually have specific counters on this. Um, a fascinating week for the Suns, playing against two contenders in the West. Some fascinating weeks coming up for the Suns. Do you have anything else to add here, Sam, before we get going? Um, just you know, keep your spirits high as we go into this next week. This is kind of the calm before the storm. Um, I'm looking ahead at the schedule now. You've got the Rockets, the Heat, the Kings, and Spurs. So these games are not completely devoid of meaning. <laughs> we will still be watching and enjoying them and, and taking the wins while uh, while they last at least. And, of course, we'll be back next next week to analyze some of those games as well. But all the while knowing that there's the gauntlet coming up when you play like six or seven contenders uh, starting next week. Exactly. That's coming up. It's going to be a major challenge for the Suns. And ultimately, it's going to define, I think, uh, how a lot of people view the Suns into the playoffs, uh, if they actually view them as pretenders or legitimate contenders. So um, enjoy these games while they last. They may not mean as much, but it's still fun basketball. Yep, that's right. And thank you, everyone, once again for listening. If you'd like to give us a review on your podcast app, feel free to do that. Uh, but we will be back next week for sure. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.